Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about majority rule and minority experience in the Democratic Republic of the United States of America. As I've said before, I may not be the best spokesperson for the topic of race. I'll do what I can. America functions with a really careful balance on a couple of ideas. One of them is majority rule, or more specifically, the notion of our government being controlled by the people rather than by a sovereign or a king. The other is the notion of representation and due process. It's those things that create a balance of power that levels the government and the branches within all those levels. So you have a balance between what the cities and states and the federal government can do. And you also have, on any one of those levels, a balance between what the uh, president versus what the Congress and what the courts can do. It's a balance of power because it tends to be exercised by representatives and not by a strict majority rule. We don't vote on everything. We tend to vote on representatives and let them do most of the work. And I'm sorry to say, most of them do the work pretty badly, but the principle of the government is still clear and valid. Controls are in place, though, especially to prevent tyrannical rule from shifting the old system of kings to a new system of majorities oppressing minorities. Now, I'm not getting on a soapbox here. I'm not speaking from experience. I have found myself at times in my life being picked on or bullied or what have you, due to certain you know, physical appearances or uh, my belief systems or whatnot. But I don't think I can begin to even insinuate that I've got first-hand knowledge about what it means to be a minority in America. I'm not. So I'm not speaking from experience here, and I'm certainly not lashing out in retaliation. So if I get worked up, it's genuinely me being worked up about the issue. Here's the, uh, the main thing I want us to take from this particular uh, topic today, and that's this. Always be suspicious when you hear someone complain about the will of the majority being thwarted. People never talk about the will of the majority being thwarted when there's an abuse of power going on. It doesn't matter if the representative or the courts or the president uh, is abusing power. When that kind of thing goes on, the issue is not the will of the majority is being thwarted. It's there's corruption and we need to deal with it. You only find this concept, this majority rights complaint, when branches of government are using their power appropriately to protect a minority group against an oppression by the majority. So the question that we've got to face here is, do we understand what it's like to be part of a minority group in a land that takes its freedoms almost completely for granted? I'm going to ask that question again in a little bit. But first, I want to emphasize a couple of things. First, we Americans have a shameful tendency to take our freedoms completely for granted. If we're on a train heading down the track where corruption in government and the um, tendency of our representatives to ignore the will of the people and instead obey the will of the people who are lining their pockets with cash, whether those are lobbyists, whether those are political parties, whoever they may be, we're just going to ride the train all the way to the end. We've forgotten what it's like to fight for our freedoms. But I'm guessing that you're going to find that minority groups are less likely to be afraid to stand up and speak for their freedoms because they've had to do it simply to survive. So 
I want to kind of first off jump into a few anecdotes, just a few ideas from the past. Can I share with you the bad news? And then from there, I'm going to bring in a few examples of the good news. And then hopefully we'll rope in our different drummer and it'll all connect and it'll all work. First off, I actually heard a speech the other day where someone said that, thankfully, we have finally put that whole racism thing behind us. As if, whether in the church or whether in the workplace or you know, whether in, in you know, the community that we live in, that racism is dead and gone. The idea was, and this was a liberal person speaking, I believe, that the racism is dead and gone because of the things that happened in the 1960s. Things that the courts did, things that Martin Luther King did, voting rights acts, some of those other sort of things. As if we think that as a group of liberal white people, we stood up, passed a few laws, laws that really did very little other than try to guarantee the freedoms that were conferred almost 100 years sooner, that we've done our part, that we've covered it. Well, I've got news for you. I'm going to try to do these by both year and location. So you can get a sense of, despite the fact that they're all pretty much, you know, Midwestern American, because that's, that's where I've, if I'm going to eyewitness something, that's where I'm going to eyewitness it. It does cover a significant span of time and a variety of places. So let me take you all the way back to 1984. This is more than two decades after the debates about voting rights acts and other civil liberties. 1984 in the state of Oklahoma sitting in a room with a bunch of other people, and it's a big enough crowd that for you to speak up and express a strong racist sentiment, you would have to believe that you weren't alone. You'd have to believe that you had allies in the room. And this person believed, I'm going to call him Kevin, I'm not sure if that's his real name or not, but this person believed that because the, there was a big crowd around and that all of us were you know, white you know, 20-somethings or what have you, white late teenagers even, that we would all feel the same way he did. And what he said was that you could not pay him a million dollars to sleep with a black woman. Now, again, we're teenage boys. Some of us are teenage boys with no meaningful sexual experience. Some of us would actually, if we had the million dollars, pay the million dollars to get that experience and maybe not be too worried about the race of the person that we were getting our first sexual experience with. But Kevin had a very different idea. You couldn't pay him a million dollars. And, of course, I'm being generous. He didn't use the word sleep with, and he didn't use the word black woman. So you kind of get a sense of how pungent this guy's point of view and his speech was. And uh, at the time, I, you know, I spoke up against him, so did a few other people. It created an argument, and it really established pretty clearly in the room which ones of us were openly racist, which ones of us were you know, very directly opposed to that, perhaps even angrily and violently opposed to that, and the most disappointing thing to me was that there was a lot of people who were just stuck in the middle. Kind of couldn't care less. You know, it didn't matter to them. They weren't a minority. It wasn't their problem. Well, again, this was early in the year. Later in the year, and this is kind of a college dormitory kind of a situation, we're, uh, we're watching American NFL football. And as the football season is progressing and, and it's going through and we're getting much more interested in the games because you're getting to the point in the NFL season where a win or a loss could knock the team you follow out of contention for the playoff. And, and teams are jockeying for position, vying for home field advantage, all those things you see in sports all around the world. And the female announcer back then for the NFL Today on one of the networks, I'm going to guess CBS, but I am just guessing, is a woman named Jane Kennedy. Now, I haven't seen Jane Kennedy in years, literally decades. So I'm going with memory a little bit on what she looked like. I think in some ways in my memory, um, Vanessa Williams and Jane Kennedy, from a physical appearance perspective, I, I get them a little bit morphed together. Because as one was drifting out of the spotlight from the perspective of being really the premier female sports uh, commentator 
uh, at least for football. The other one crept into the spotlight through a great deal of Miss America-related controversy, and then later a singing career. So I get them mixed up. But if you can conjure in your head either an image of Jane Kennedy or an image of Vanessa Williams, you get the idea of what we're talking about here. We're all sort of, you know, talking about the game that's coming up, talking about the standings, but we're also talking about what's on TV. And somewhere along the way, somebody mentioned that uh, Jane Kennedy, awfully nice, not a bad way to get some sexual experience. And again, we didn't word it that way. Everyone in the room sort of concurred with this, and it flew around the room with a consensus. And first off, why not? Beautiful woman. But the other thing that I found is that perhaps from a, from a prejudice perspective, at least as powerful, even in the heart of a very racist person, tends to be homophobia. So you're not going to find very many men, when presented with an attractive woman, pretend that they've got too high of a standard for her, you know, because... First off, just the whole nature of homophobia is it's very important that you appear to be heterosexual as often as you possibly can if you're in the midst of other people who are just as homophobic as you may or may not be. And so the, the conversation goes around to Kevin, and Kevin, of course, chimes right in. Perhaps the thing he fears more than being stuck in the, with a black person in the elevator is being stuck with a gay person in the elevator or having someone mistake him for, for being gay. So he chimes in as well that, yeah, absolutely, uh, Jane Kennedy, she's awesome. I just looked at him and I said, I need my million dollars now. Because you told me that, you know, you'd give me a million dollars if you ever slapped with a black woman. And I'm just going to play the Sermon on the Mount card. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthews chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus says pretty clearly that if you look lustfully at a woman and contemplate that idea of, of having an inappropriate relationship with her, that you've already done it. You know, the thought is sufficient in terms of your, your relative degree of sinfulness. That Jesus raising the bar very high to explain to people the distance between human sinfulness and what humans consider to be good behavior and God's holiness. So that distance between, yeah, well, I didn't really rape the woman. I just thought about having my way with her, whether she was willing or not, being yeah, not good enough. The fact that you were thinking in those terms, that you were being violently sexually aggressive towards someone, even just in your mind, is bad enough. So I called Kevin on it. Now, I'm still waiting for my million dollars, but at least what I did get from him was some lame excuse about how I was right, but I wasn't really right, because even though she was black, she was kind of white, whatever. That was the state of racism in my personal experience, people I encountered in 1984. Jump forward to 1989 in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm making a cross-country trip. I like making cross-country trips. It's the kind of thing you don't get to do when you hit a certain age and you have certain responsibilities. But I was making a cross-country trip, and there was a question in my mind about whether I should stay and spend the night in the uh, near downtown St. Louis, kind of see St. Louis and the arch and stuff first thing in the morning when I resumed my drive, or whether I should go further. And uh, just casual conversation at the gas station, talking to you know the guy next to me pumping gas, and I get this feedback from him, that I probably should stay the night here, because the other side of St. Louis is pretty dark. It's the dark side of town. Now, a couple of things that I want you to take from this. First, I'm being given instructions by somebody that based on uh, the racial profiling of the people living in a certain community that I would or would not want to drive there and stay there. And he was basically saying, hey, once you get past this particular exit, you might as well commit to driving another hour because you don't want to stop anywhere along the way. Well, the other thing I want you to take from it, though, is how racially divided 1989 and really all the decades before it were in this part of the Midwest that I was in, Little Rock, Arkansas, Tulsa, Oklahoma, there were more than just a few cities in that part of the country where you had sort of your, your community that was 100% black people and your community that was at least 
in the minds of some white people, supposed to be 100% white. So you have these, this whole separate but equal concept, which may have disappeared from schools in the 1950s, early, early 60s. I don't think so, but it may have. Has not been touched when it comes to the way communities were set up and established or maintained at the very least. So separate, separate but equal was still very much a concept. And if you look carefully at a map and studied some of the demographics, you might find that it's still going on in those exact same cities today. Jump forward to 1993 in Texas. Having a casual conversation, the kind of conversation you have when you're introducing your children to somebody else's children. So at this point, I've got one daughter. We've got plans to have a son or another kid. It turned out to be a son. We are, have met a couple that already has a few more kids than us. Now, they're a little bit older, but they have a few more kids than us. And basically, we just kind of, in the course of conversation, said, no, we're very happy. We think we're going to have two kids. We think we're probably going to stop there. Because the world, frankly, is in more danger of overpopulation than it is of underpopulation. That I don't feel that there's any great need for me to personally try to generate as much childbirth as, as humanly possible. It doesn't make any sense. I'm not Roman Catholic. I don't have an anti-birth control mindset. And uh, so I, I sort of shared that. And the person, the man in this couple, really reacted to that in a way that really shocked me. He got a very serious look on his face. And he said, listen to me. I think you're making a mistake. It's very important. Um, that you know, and it basically his gist was the minorities are having more kids than they can count, um, and played the illegitimacy card. You know, kids out of wedlock. Uh, you know, the welfare baby thing. You imagine how far that can go in an ugly direction. And it didn't go all the way there, but it went a ways down the line. And his message to me was, you got to have as many kids as you possibly can, or before you know it, the white people will be the minority. Of these other groups will be the majority, either the Mexicans or the Asians or the black people, and, and you know, then, then you'll see how bad it can be. And I just looked at him and I said, what, are you crazy? You know, you're, you're using population control techniques or the inverse of population control techniques to exercise sort of a, a racist worldview? I said, why do you have to worry about whether or not you're in a majority group or a minority group? And the truth of the matter was, I was calling to his attention the fact that his own mindset toward minorities and his treatment of minorities had everything to do with why he was afraid of what it might mean to be a minority himself, perhaps a little bit worried about the comeuppance. 1997, state of Kansas. We lived there for a while, and at one point our kids were invited to a birthday party in a street not at all far away from the street where we lived. I mean, it was a couple miles. It was certainly in, in the same school district or a nearby school district. And we're talking with neighbors, but we found out that at least one of our neighbors did not intend to go to this party because the, the neighborhood had gone bad. And what this person meant by the neighborhood had going bad was that an otherwise white neighborhood now had a black family or an Indian family or a, an Asian family. Some minority had moved in. You know, it takes you a while to recover your words when you encounter this kind of thing. It's not not the sort of thing that you're ready for because it always sort of strikes you off guard. You might be ready for it if you're like in a cowboy bar where they're playing Western tunes and, you know, people are, you know, in that kind of scenario because you're in, you're in a redneck situation for want of a better word. But in this case, we weren't. We were in a place where we were surrounded by people that should have had the same values we did and oddly did not. Jump to 2002, state of Ohio. This is a, kind of the inverse, and I want to be very open about this, that you know, race relations are tricky, and it works both ways. I'm leaving a Christian bookstore uh, where I've done some, done some shopping. You know, I have a couple of, couple of things in my bag, nothing, nothing important. And I've got both my kids with me, and a man asks me if I can give him a ride back to his neighborhood. <clears throat> well, I, 
I knew where his neighborhood was based on the street name that he gave me because we'd been there before. We had a babysitter in that neighborhood, so our kids had played in that neighborhood before. But I wasn't familiar with his exact street. I just kind of had the gist of it, and it was not too far out of our way. So, I, yeah, he hopped in the car. We drove over there. This is, this is me, my two kids, elementary school age, and a black man. There are people when I share this story tell me that they think I was nuts for even letting this man in the car. But I guess I don't know how to word this, except to say that as a Christian, I had a sense that this was not a problem. I had an abiding sense that, first off, I should give him a ride, and second, that there wasn't anything to worry about. But he had something to worry about, because at a certain point, we pull into this neighborhood, and we're getting past the street that I know, and we're maybe two, three blocks away from the part of the neighborhood I was not familiar with, and he turned to me and he said, you might want to stop right here. So I stopped, pulled the car over, and he said, it's best for both of us if you don't drop me off in front of the house I'm going to. So... I listened to him, cooperated, dropped him off, drove away. Now, I can't say with any certainty that any level of racism was in play here. But in my mind, when I play it out, it being not in the best interest of either him or me for me to drop him off, either means that some criminal activity was going on or could be going on, or perhaps more likely he was going to be in the presence of people who were not going to be racially tolerant of the idea of him hanging out with any white folk. So I think racism does genuinely work both ways. I'm going to jump forward to 2006, and I'm going to hold the location of this to a later time, because I think that the location of this particular event is unstuck in time. It's not in any particular state, and it's not in any particular decade, much less a year. But um, safe to say that this occurred in what we might call the heart of the heart of the country, uh, to quote the William Gass short story. And I'm, uh, a person approaches me with the Sunday newspaper. And the Sunday newspaper opened to the wedding section, and the front page of the wedding section has this a big wedding picture kind of spanning the entire front page of the paper. The reason for it, of course, was that it was a huge picture with a big wedding party with, I want to say, seven bridesmaids, seven groomsmen, you know, the whole nine yards. And the person who showed me this picture, older generation, showed me this picture and said, what's wrong with this photo? So what's wrong with this picture? Totally took me off guard. Again, this is an individual with whom I'd had many experiences, not a single which gave me any hint that I was about to encounter any racism. I looked at the picture and I said, ridiculously huge wedding party? She shook her head no. I said, uh, well, um, he's a military guy, so he's probably going to get married and then immediately get shipped off to a war zone. She said no. And then she mouthed the words. Again, maybe on some level knowing that her feelings were socially unacceptable. Perhaps knowing that her feelings were wrong. She mouthed the words to me, he's black and she's white. That's 2006 in America today. We still have such a long way to go. So I ask again the question, do we understand what it is like to be part of a minority group in a land that takes its freedoms almost completely for granted? It's in moments like these that I have a pessimistic answer. At least on the very worst days, I have a pessimistic answer. Welcome to the Terror Dome. What you do? Get your head ready. Instead, I get it physically sweaty. When I get mad, put it down on a pad. Huh. Give you something that you never had. Controlling, fear, power rolling. God bless your soul and keep living. Never allowed, kicking it loud, dropping a bomb, brain game, intellectual beat. And I move as a team. Never move alone. Well, welcome to the Terror Dome. It's possible that it's insulting to read these words to you, having just listened to the uh, final verse of Welcome to the Terror Dome by Public Enemy. But just in case you couldn't follow, I'll try my best. What you do, get your head ready instead of getting physically sweaty. When I get mad, I put it down in the pad. 
give you something that you never had. Controlling, fear of high rolling. God bless your soul and keep living. Never allowed, kicking it loud, dropping a bomb. Brain game, intellectual Vietnam. Move as a team. Never move alone, but welcome to the Terror Dome. I'll have more to say about this in just a moment. For this week's Different Drummer is Carlton D. Reidenauer. Carlton Douglas Reidenauer is surely better known as Chuck D., the lead rapper and leader of the rap group Public Enemy. At a time when other hip-hop artists were either focused on the dance floor or striking a pose as gangsters, Public Enemy was boldly and consistently political. They identified issues largely from their own perspective as outsiders to the U.S. mainstream, and Chuck D.'s words reflect his political awareness, his activism, and his sense of what the U.S. culture could be and should be. Chuck D. committed to moving the dial. Now, I come to rap as an outsider. I'm not a big hip-hop fan. I was old enough that when I was growing up listening to music, it's the music that we now today call classic rock. I remember sharing not long ago, my first rock concert was probably Yes, and I saw the band Yes twice in consecutive years. Uh, I also saw groups like Heart and Sticks and, you know, bands like that. Did not have much experience with hip-hop when hip-hop first kind of you know, came to popularity. And had I not been working in a record store, I'm not sure I would have noticed to the full extent that I should have. But one of the things that I told the uh, employees that I had when I was running a record store was, listen, you can't be an expert in everything. It's important that you be passionate about the music that you like. But it's also important that for every section of music in the store, and I was in one of those stores that carried a wide variety of musical genre, for every section of the music that we carry in our store, You've got to find what you feel is the best because I don't want, I didn't, I didn't want my employees lying to customers and I didn't want us treating customers like we were nothing more than the marketing arm of the top 40 billboard chart. It was okay for us to recommend something that wasn't top of the pops, but it needed to be genuine. So what I told people is, um, if you don't listen to rap, that's fine. I'm not somebody who listens to that much rap. You better find the thing in here you like the best, though. And with the combination of in-store play and interaction with customers and uh, a few other things, it was able to get even somebody who'd never heard rap music before, or by the same token, somebody who maybe had never heard country music before, enough familiarity that you might be able to connect with, with one particular thing is best. Well, I practice what I preach. And one of the things that I did when I first realized that there was this entire section of rap music and none of it was familiar to me. Um, I may have heard Tone Loke on MTV. I may have become aware later that Young MC had written really the lyrics to some of the more popular songs Tone Loke had put out as singles, and then familiarized myself with Young MC. But I had not scratched the surface of what this genre was about. And with parental language um, stickers on the albums, it was unlikely that I was ever going to find anything that I could play in the store and kind of listen while I worked. And it was even less likely that I would ever hear any on the radio. I can recall one time a radio station calling us and asking us to provide them, local radio station, to provide them with what my particular music store's top 10 sellers were. And it was a top 40 station trying to look to uh, put a little local flavor in their, uh, their regular Billboard top 40 playlist. And I remember telling the lady, I said, with all due respect, you don't want this list from me. She goes, well, why not? I said, because you're not going to be able to play it on your radio station. 
and she didn't believe me. I took her through the albums and EPs that were our best sellers at that point in time for that particular week. And um, I'm going to get to number one in a second just because it's a funny story. But I get to number two, and number two is NWA. And she asks me what that means. She had, at this point, 19, I don't know, 90, 91, no idea what those letters meant. That's how entrenched in the top 40 she was. If it wasn't boys to men, she was unaware of it. And I said, well, it's initials that stand for niggas with attitude. And she goes, well, I don't understand what that means. And I said, well, it's a rap group, a posse, several rappers sharing the chore of uh, lyric writing and also vocal performance with a DJ inside their group. That's kind of how it works. She goes, well, what's the, what's the big song everyone's asking for? What, what's driving the sales of the album? And I said, well, you don't want to know that either. I mean, it's a song called Just Don't Bite It, and it's a song about fellatio. She got kind of quiet. You could tell she understood what I meant. She said, well, let's move on to the next song. Well, number one was a heavy metal album by uh, Sepultura. Now, because of the way the record industry worked at the time, the way it's still trying and kind of failing to work today, you'd always get great sales of the new thing that came out. So if you have a new release, and that new release has um, built up some hype, people have heard about it, they've seen it on MTV, they've, in this case, heard about it on Headbangers Ball, they're going to want to come in and get it right away. So you're always going to get great, strong sales in the first week of any new release with a lot of buzz behind it. And this Brazilian heavy metal band had that buzz for the album Arise. The number one seller that particular week when this DJ called me was Sepultura. Now, she asked me, she goes, well, Sepultura, what does that mean? Now, didn't have a bad vocabulary. She didn't have any trouble understanding the, you know, somewhat sexual terminology I'd used for the previous artist. But for this one, she had no clue. And I said, well, you know, I'm not 100% sure that I'm going to get the definition right either. But here's how I interpret it. As I asked her, do you know what a sepulcher is? And she thought for a minute. And she says, the above ground uh, cemeteries in New Orleans. I said, yeah, the, the graves in some uh, low-lying areas that are above ground because you can't put the bodies below sea level. She goes, yeah. I said, Sepultura is what's inside. She thanked me for my time, and I never got another call from that radio station wanting to know my top ten. The reason I tell the story, though, is because at the time in rap, most of the rap was either about violent retribution against police, you know, what body count would eventually come out to do, or it was drug dealing or, uh, you know, pimping's not easy, but somebody's got to do it. It was that kind of talk, or it was more on the other side where it was all just, you know, sort of uh, dance and fun, rump shake, that sort of thing. In the midst of all that and consistently throughout it, Public Enemy was serious. And I appreciated the fact that they expected to be taken seriously. At the heart of that seriousness was Chuck D. And my personal preference of all the songs by Public Enemy is not Fight the Power. It's Welcome to the Terror Dome. The band produced a consistent wall of sound behind them. It pretty much didn't compare easily to the made for dance floor kind of songs or the uh, check out your kicking system with this bass track kind of songs that were coming out at the same time. It was literally just, you know, throwing some throwing some rock at you. I considered it to be a strong rock and roll background. But the other thing about it is I found the found the song to be very incredibly quotable. Uh, hear my favoritism roll. Oh, never be a brother like me go solo. The way I'm living, forgiven what I'm giving up. I don't know about later. As for now, I'm going to avoid the paranoid. He talked to his critics. In fact, some of the instrumental and interlude sort of tracks bring in some of his critics that he could use to sort of demonstrate the racism that was being put in his face in his local New York City as they were an East Coast band. Themes and ideas like it's weak to blame somebody else when you destroy yourself. These kinds of concepts 
in a not particularly short rap song, maybe five minutes, but five minutes packed with ideas, packed with concepts. And for that, you know, I props to Chuck D. A couple of observations I'd make. Chuck D did later release a solo album, so <laughs> it's not like he was accurately predicting what would happen later on in his career when he said that he would never be the type to go solo. But I like the idea that, you know, from the perspective of writing style, he clearly wasn't just going up and hitting rhymes and making connections in a completely impromptu way. His music reflects the idea that a lot of thought has gone into it. And to the degree that he can be given credit for the lyrics, I think that's probably an overstatement to give him complete credit for the lyrics. But to the degree that you can point to one member of the band and say, there's where the lyrics have come from, I think you've got to give the credit to Chuck D for that. There are things about Chuck D's perspective that I disagree with. For one thing, I'm not a Muslim. For another, I don't have much, if any, sort of connection or empathy for the Nation of Islam or Louis Farrakhan. I do not consider myself to be the kind of person who is either pro-Israel or anti-Israel. So I don't have an opinion on a lot of the topics that seem to resonate the most strongly for him. However, it's enough that a serious musician putting out music that he expected to be taken seriously in a marketplace that was just kind of interested in more the at the time really the dj jazzy jeff and the fresh prince kicking it back summertime sort of an attitude and he knew he was giving up audience to make it happen found it to be worth it and i agree with him it was worth it my different drummer this week particularly when i'm thinking about this topic and just putting my foot for the first time in the water of the question of race relations in america different drummer this week Chuck D. I'm tempted to say at this point in time that I don't want to leave this show with a negative vibe, but the reality is a negative vibe is exactly what I was shooting for here. I needed to wake people up from the idea that some seem to have that we no longer have a problem in this country today, that there isn't any real racial divide that the presence of racism itself has died down from what it historically has been, and that we don't have challenges facing us. I think we do. But I would like to end on a positive note. So let me share some good news, because my experience uh, within interracial relations have not consistently been negative. It certainly has been true that I've encountered my fair share of racist people from many races. I've heard names called to me that are equivalent to the kind of names you would hear from the redneck community. I have, for example, been on a Indian Reservation and found myself being definitely the minority group in that scenario. And, you know, this notion that to be a majority means you're an oppressor and to be a minority means that you're always a victim is not true. Uh, it's much more fluid than that. However, I've seen positive signs, uh, not just in the last couple of years, but really even during this entire span for the last couple of decades, things that have kept me encouraged where for the negative things that I've encountered, I've, I've encountered positive ones as well. So let me start off with what might be the obvious one, Barack Obama. I take it as a positive sign, even though I didn't vote for him. And if I've said it before, but I'll say it again. I'm pretty much done voting for Republicans and Democrats. So that's why he had no shot at getting my vote. John McCain perhaps even had less shot at getting my vote, truth be known. The bottom line was, I think it's positive that we still are in a place in our country where it's not beyond the realm of possibility that a minority person can become president of the United States. We're looking at it. That's a good thing. Going all the way back to high school, I can remember having a conversation during gym. I'm not exactly sure why in this particular gym class we weren't doing anything. 
it may be that they were preparing the basketball court for a varsity game, or maybe they'd set up a volleyball net on the basketball court for a varsity volleyball game. But for whatever reason, we were supposed to just kind of sit there. So it was literally, you go into your PE class, you switch into your gym clothes, but then we just kind of sat for an hour and talked. And at that point, maybe, I don't know, freshman, sophomore in high school, somewhere in there, we're you know, rock and roll is what we we're talking about. We're talking about music. We're talking about musicians. We're talking about the songs. I'm quoting lyrics. Friends are talking about learning the bass line. And all that sort of talk is going on. It was during that conversation that I remember turning to Kevin, one of the black students in my class, and asking him what he thought of Led Zeppelin. Now, maybe I was naive, but it didn't seem like a weird question. We're talking about Led Zeppelin. At the time, they were perhaps the most popular heavy metal band around. They were still either together or maybe John Bonham had just died. It was you're right in that point where they were really kind of at the pinnacle of their popularity. I was not ready for my fellow student, Kevin, to tell me that he had never heard of them and didn't have the first clue what I was talking about. Really caught me by surprise. And rather than that being an ugly incident or a situation where there'd be some racial conflict, yeah, I just it really very innocently wasn't even trying to be magnanimous in any way. Just said, well, who do you listen to? And he and I sort of splintered off a little, had our own little conversation, brought some of my friends into it, and I learned for the first time about bands that at the time I was completely unfamiliar with. I had never heard of Parliament Funkadelic, had never heard of Eddie Hazel, had never heard of George Clinton. And because of Kevin and his willingness to cross that line and talk to me about music, and because I was willing to hear, eager to hear, as a matter of fact, because I didn't have any, I didn't have any racial distinction. To me, Jimi Hendrix dismissed any notion that rock and roll was a white man's game. So it really wasn't a problem for me. And it maybe wasn't that weekend, maybe it was the next weekend, but I went out and sought the Funkadelic album, the first Funkadelic album I could find with Maggot Brain on it, so I could hear what Kevin was telling me, and I found with my own two ears that what Kevin was telling me was true, that Funkadelic rocked every bit as hard as anybody at the time he was recording music. I'm still a listener of Parliament Funkadelic today, and who knows how many other black artists that I otherwise might not have been exposed to if I'd stayed in my um, heavy metal, sort of classic rock genre, where it was hard to find a minority in the crowd at any of the concerts. Likewise, at church, it was sometimes hard to find any minority attending the church that I went to. And to our shame, perhaps, in America, it's still true in the Protestant church today, that if you go to, at least in the South, if you go to a Methodist church, there's going to be an African Methodist Episcopal church that's the corresponding church for that. Likewise, in the Southern Baptist realm, there's some of those Baptist churches are all black, and some of those Baptist churches are all white, and that's a shame. Even within the United Methodist umbrella, there were churches that were United Methodist and all black. So not part of uh, AME, but just Methodist, but all just an all black congregation. Now, some of that is based on the part of town you're in. And as I mentioned earlier, you've got these, these divides in certain cities, especially in the South, where there's a line and you're, where there's a line and there's something of a color barrier in the way the real estate works. But the church that I was going to at one point did uh, an exchange program where on one Sunday night, the pastor of our church went and did a special Sunday night service at the church on the other side of town. And that pastor came and did a special service on our side of town. We sent our choir over, um, which was a very traditional, what you might think of as a, as a very, you know, conservative sort of, you know, church choir. And he brought, he 
Reverend Gordon brought his choir over, and Reverend Gordon's choir raised the roof and rocked the house. And just when I thought, well, you know, this is really pretty cool, and it's pretty cool because the music's different, and I'm feeling the worship experience in a completely different way. But in my mind, it was, it was largely because of the experience of the music. But that was before Reverend Gordon had the opportunity to speak. And when this man preached, he brought the words to life. And in some ways, I felt like I was hearing a fairly familiar biblical passage for the first time ever, because he literally preached directly from Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah chapter 6, if you were to go to my church at the time, and I don't have the Bible open in front of me, I'm going to wing it. But if you went to the church that I was going to at the time, and a lay speaker or the pastor were to read this passage from the Old Testament, it would sound something like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was standing in the temple. That would be the tone of voice you would get. But when Reverend Gordon told the story, it was... In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was standing at the temple, and it didn't sound anywhere near as fake as I'm making it sound. I can't emulate this. I don't have what it's, I don't have what it takes to emulate this. But the man spoke with truth, spoke with conviction, brought the word to life. Fantastic experience. And then every time we had a chance to do any sort of congregational exchange, I, I jumped at it. So I've had all these consistently positive experiences. We would. Um, from time to time, go to worship in an African Methodist Episcopal church when we would visit a friend out of town, uh, you know, black friend of ours from school. And um, if you were going to be staying the weekend and the weekend was going to include Sunday, well, if you're visiting this lady, you're going to church with her or you're sitting at home waiting for her because she's going to church. So we went to church with her. And I'm telling you what, if you've never experienced being the only white couple in an otherwise black congregation, well, then you've cheated yourself. You're actually fulfilling the negative aspects of what my theme for this show is all about. That in America, we've got this concept of majority will, and we don't understand how that works with minority experience, because most of the people who consider themselves to be part of the majority have never let themselves be in a minority group. They've never let themselves be the minority. They've never seen things from that perspective. And in my case, what that means, <clears throat> sometimes you're going to be on an Indian reservation and people are going to call you you know, white cloud and all sort of stuff and uh, throw cow chips at you. But more often than not, you're going to get to experience the hospitality of people who almost never get to extend that particular hospitality to someone like you. Four pages locked and ready to fire. Starbase 66, the international Star Trek and science fiction podcast. You know, because there's no more Deep Space Nine and there's no more Next Generation, they've actually initiated, I know that Deep Space Nine has the eighth season, which is nothing but novels. Yeah, there's Voyager like, books like that as well, too. Yeah. So and nobody cares. That, that comes. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone cares about the eighth season of Voyager. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean I Ladies and gentlemen, the group. <laughs> Starbase 66 along with many other fine podcasts is available at simplysyndicated.com. Live long and prosper. I want to finish the program again trying to end on a positive note by talking about some other positive examples or some things that at least resonate with me. The film Remember the Titans, perhaps a little close to the saccharine line there, a little sweet. But I like the edge that it does have. Wish maybe it had a little bit more edge to it, and really enjoy seeing that film. Um, it's been a for, it's been a long time since I've seen the Academy Award winner from 1967. 
in the heat of the night. But whenever I get a chance to see Sidney Poitier act, I tend to take it. And uh, one of these times, I'm going to pick that movie from the beginning and go with it. And on television, for me, my favorite uh, television character uh, that, that's been on TV for the last maybe 15, 20 years is uh, performed by Essie Patha Merkerson on the Law & Order series, the Lieutenant Anita Van Buren character. She is actually, if I did this as a quiz, I don't think anybody would ever guess, but at the time this episode is being released, she has been the longest-running black character in the history of television. That at no point in the previous history of television in the United States of America has an African-American been the same character on the same show over that consistent of a run. Now, fair enough. Law & Order is a pretty special program that's been around for a very long time. But there are other programs that have run just as long or longer. It's not like she appeared in the very first season, either. But she's achieved that goal. Finally, quick anecdote from my own children. I remember when we were living in the city where there was a little bit of a flap over the birthday party, and some of the kids that we knew, either from, from the uh, preschool program my kids were in or from the neighborhood, were not going to go to this party. And the reason they weren't going to go to the party was because... Um, Somebody had moved into the house near this family, and they were a black family. And it was so there was questions of race going on inside our home. How were we going to deal with this? Well, of course, our kids were going to the party because there was no reason not to. It was, it was a ridiculous problem that anybody was having, and it told me obviously more about them. And that was kind of the message we gave our kids that that sort of hatred tells you more about the person who's expressing the hatred than it does about the option, the object of their ire, and. That's kind of the best you can do, I think, in that situation, especially when you're dealing with kids who are, you know, kindergarten or pre-kindergarten, in this case, pre-kindergarten. But in the midst of having this conversation, at one point, I believe it was my daughter, uh, looked at us very confused. And if I get the story wrong, I apologize. But looked at us very confused and said, I don't understand what you mean by black people. And we, you know, I, I didn't know what this came from. I was a little bit concerned. Maybe, you know, she'd already encountered enough racial hatred that, you know, that some sort of Ronald Reagan-style color blindness argument had been made to her, and she was spouting it back to me. I just didn't know where it came from. And so we, you know, we called out some of our friends by name. You know, if I was still hanging out with, with Kevin from high school, I would have called him, well, you know, I'm talking about people like Kevin. You know, and, and so that she had a sense of what we meant by the difference between white people and black people. In some ways, it was heartwarming as a father that this was not a distinction that was foremost in her mind. But she actually stopped and corrected me, actually corrected all of us, and said, you know, Dad... I don't see those people as being black people at all. Their skin's brown. And I stopped for a moment and I thought, you know what? We throw around a lot of terminology. A lot of the terminology is based on our, at least in my case, in my life, a reaction to the hatred that I've heard and rejected. But we, we think of these things as being black and white. And we don't bother to actually you know, look through the eyes of a child and say, hey, what is this person saying? Well, first off, the child has to experience or witness the kind of hatred that I've described in this show to even make that distinction. You know, to them, the difference in the shade of somebody's skin is not that important. You know, they're, they're not in elementary school yet. They haven't been exposed to the racist hatred of anybody else yet, certainly not inside our home, thank goodness. But they see the world through different eyes. And where we talk about things from the perspective of race relations as black versus white, sometimes we need to see these things again with a fresh perspective to do what Jesus Christ said and look at things through the eyes of a child and see, hey, you know what? This isn't about black at all. This isn't about white at all. It's more about brown than anything else. All righty then. <laughs> Anomaly. 
Something that deviates from what is standard, normal, or expected. An oddity, peculiarity, irregularity, inconsistency, incongruity, a rarity. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly. The podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Lord of the Rings. Buffy. Firefly. Gaming. Books. Costuming. And general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. Thanks for listening to this inappropriate conversation about race. It's a humble attempt, so please forgive me if I stumbled through it a little bit. But in my mind, it's a first attempt, and if we're going to have inappropriate conversations, we've got to have them even where it's a bit of a challenge. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, comments are enabled with the show notes at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. I also can be reached via email at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening.